McAfee is the device-to-cloud cybersecurity company and a trusted partner for federal government agencies, state and local governments, and education providers. Inspired by the power of working together, McAfee creates solutions that make our world a safer place. By building solutions that work with other companies' products, McAfee helps public sector entities orchestrate cyber environments that are truly integrated, where protection, detection, and correction of threats happen simultaneously and collaboratively. For more information, visit McAfee.com slash public sector. Welcome to Securiosity for April 12th. I'm Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel, ready to bring you the world's best weekly wrap-up of InfoSec News. This week, we will get into why Julian Assange is not a hacker, no matter what the U.S. government says, a new plan to get people into the InfoSec workforce, and a whole new spin on the word cyberspace. In our weekly interview, we talked to Eric Heitzman from Security Compass, who looks to peel back all the buzzwords and tell us some practical ways to how DevSecOps can work for your organization. But there was a ton of other news that went down this week, so let's break it all down. The Department of Justice unsealed charges against Julian Assange Thursday, accusing the WikiLeaks founder of engaging in a conspiracy with former U.S. Army soldier Chalisa Manning to leak classified information. Assange is accused of encouraging Manning to send WikiLeaks U.S. secrets, then agreed to assist Manning in cracking a hashed password that protected classified government files. While Assange was unable to access the password, the Justice Department says his partnership with Manning resulted in the 2010 publication of U.S. diplomatic cables and video footage of a U.S. soldier shooting at civilians in Iraq. WikiLeaks has a long history of publishing stolen or hacked information, including emails from the Democratic National Committee. The Vault 7 documents, which detailed some of the CIA's hacking capabilities, neither of these cases were mentioned in the indictment. Greg, what do you make of these charges? So these charges, I think are weak only because what it basically amounts to is that the government is charging that Assange asking Chelsea Manning for a password is a crime. Now, there's no evidence that that password was used by Assange or it was cracked and then he broke into Cipernet. Um, unless there's more evidence to come. But the the charge just seems to be extremely weak. It basically amounts to, and there's not a, a legal term for this yet, but there's a bunch of other attempted crimes on the book, like you can do attempted murder, attempted bank robbery, attempted battery, all of that stuff. This I mean, is this like is a, an attempted hacking charge. Yeah, but this, I mean, this looks like really conspiracy against the United States. He's trying to get classified information are U.S. secrets and share them with the world. Right. So, and here's the thing why I think that it's a a dangerous precedent for this, only because, look, I I am not very fond of Julian Assange. I, I don't know anybody that really is. The thing is here is the precedent can be set if he is convicted that handing over this information to the press is somewhat illegal. Like normally journalists have first amendment protection rights. And when something like this goes on the books, that looks at a way to try to chip away at what journalists do. I mean, we can get into the conversations about whether Julian Assange is actually a journalist or not. I, I, I don't think it matters because 
U.S. law likes to work on precedent. And once you have the precedent here, I think that you can move forward and move toward, you know, other more, quote unquote, legit journalists here. So I think that this case, while it is, uh, you know, it's being charged under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, I think it has more to do with press freedoms than anything. But But how is espionage press freedoms? He's not being charged with anything under the the Espionage Act. This is computer fraud and abuse. If, if it was an Espionage Act, it would be a totally different conversation. If you but know, still, I mean, it, but it, I I mean, I think it fits better in there, right? He's asking for classified information um, for WikiLeaks, right? Which is why I have like one eyebrow raised. Like the world's not on fire in terms of journalistic press freedoms. Um, I um. I saw a lot of people on Twitter after the charges were announced, just sort of losing their minds and saying, this is the last erosion of press freedoms. And it's like, well, calm down. Like the indictment's weak. Let's see where this goes. But I have one eyebrow raised as to, you know, what that really means for press freedoms moving forward. Um, Obviously, I'm not a journalist and I guess I'm a little bit confused. How is this? going to trial and him being convicted have anything to do with press freedom? Because a lot of classified information, I think think what happened with Edward Snowden. Edward Snowden didn't go to um, WikiLeaks with this. He went to the Washington Post. He went to The Guardian. And the Washington Post and The Guardian are were never on trial for publishing that information. And yet the founder of WikiLeaks, the, the dissemination of information, I mean, that, that that guy is the one that's being charged with trying to get information from Chelsea Manning. Like, I'm the, guessing the, that the Washington Post didn't offer to um, crack passwords. So with the cracking of passwords, there isn't any evidence yet in the indictment that says that Assange actually figured out a way to crack the password. So that's why I'm I'm interested in this being like almost an attempted hacking case. Is attempted hacking uh, a violation of the law? Now you can charge somebody with it because obviously we have this indictment, sure. but to yeah. see these charges stick in court is, is going to be really interesting. And yeah, you're right. On its face, it's not a direct assault on the way that journalists do job. I and mean, you're right, no journalist that's worth their, uh, you know, that, that actually takes their job seriously is going out to their sources and going, hey man, you know, can you do some illegal stuff for us because it's really, really important? That's not the way this works at all. So, uh, you know, I, I, I can see rationale for the charge. It's just that I, I see the way that the law is crafted and, uh, yeah, like once the precedent is set, it starts to be a slippery slope to get towards other more mainstream publications. So, but with that being said, I'm not, I'm not like some of the people out in the public that have their hair on fire. It's just <laughs> something that's going to need to be watched. Well, I'm going to be really unpopular and I'm going to say if you're publishing classified data knowingly, you should also be going to court. No, I, I, <laughs> okay, you're not going to be my lawyer if CyberScoop ever uh, gets their hands on some information that they want to publish. So it's just like the old saying, when you can't hire them, offer to pay their student loan debt. 
MasterCard, Microsoft, and Workday said this week they'll provide up to $75,000 in student loan assistance for recruits who first spend two years working for one of 11 government agencies. The Cybersecurity Talent Initiative operates on this logic. By forming a pipeline of trained technologists and offering to help with crippling student loan debt and to give the federal workforce the help that it needs, participating companies can increase their chances at hiring network defenders. Jen, do you think that this logic is sound? I think it's genius. You're taking um, a student that you that would graduate that you might hire internally that you have to then spend at least seventy five thousand dollars training them, getting up to speed to they're actually useful, and instead you're spending that money shipping them off um, to the government to have them train them, um, and 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 probably do a much better job of doing it. Um, and then um, two years later, um, bringing them into your company. I think that's genius. Yeah, I think this is a really good idea. And it follows models that are already in place inside the government. I know that there are a lot of other professions where if you go to school and you devote some time to the government, I think it's yeah. somewhere between five or 10 years, the government will take care of your student loans for you. I think that that's a good trade-off no matter what you know, type of job that you're doing. But I think it's also smart for MasterCard, Microsoft, and Workday to tap into this because, uh, look, uh, a lot of the help is needed inside the the federal government. But then just overall, whether it's big or small companies, they need cybersecurity help regardless of the size of their company. Everybody needs yeah. more cybersecurity help. So the the more companies that are thinking about new ways to build a new workforce, I, I don't see how this idea could be anything but good. So speaking of open cyber jobs, Christian Nielsen, perhaps the most cyber-focused DHS secretary the department has known, resigned on Sunday. Her departure leaves a void in the top of the department as it looks to build a momentum following the establishment of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Nielsen's 16 months as DHS secretary were defined by her advocacy for Trump's hardline immigration policies. But in the cybersecurity realm, she will be known for using her pulpit to call attention to the increasingly potent hacking capabilities of America's adversaries. Greg, what does this mean for DHS's cyber mission? So I'm not sure that it means a lot. Uh, like you said, uh, Nielsen was really more focused on hardline immigration, and we know all about that being a key component of the Trump administration. So on the cybersecurity side, I think it's just going to be business as usual. They're just kind of weathering the storm as far as uh, the media noise is concerned. Yeah. But at the same time, um, Chris Krebs is still in place. Jeanette Manfred's still in place. There's been no leadership change as far as the cybersecurity mission is going there. So I think that they're just trying to weather the storm and then, you know, keep doing what they've been doing. Well, let's hope their replacement is also focused on cybersecurity. Well, I, I think the acting commissioner right now is from CBP. So I don't think that that's necessarily going to happen right out of the gates. But I mean, at the same time, um, you know, I, I talked to some sources inside DHS and they said, look, we're, we're just keeping our head down. I don't think this is going to affect us. And hopefully it doesn't because we've been making uh, a lot of good progress on a lot of the things that we needed, yeah. need to get done and have needed to get done for a number of years. So, um, you know, talent initiatives, National Cyber Risk Management Center, all up and running. So everything's still good, at least on that side of the house. So the next piece of news puts the space in cyberspace. If tech companies have their way, there will be thousands of additional satellites circling the planet in the coming years, 
presenting all sorts of potential cybersecurity problems. The existing space industry is responding with the creation of an information sharing and analysis center, which is a federally approved organization that helps track cyber threats for member companies and related government agencies. The new space ISAC will be housed in Colorado Springs within the National Cybersecurity Center, which is a nonprofit created to improve awareness about securing cyberspace. San Diego-based defense contractor Kratos Defense and Security Solutions says it's the founding member of the group, and they will cover the startup costs, the organizational planning, and the federal paperwork. So, Jen, when you hear threats and space in the same sentence, cyber isn't really what comes to mind, is it? No, interestingly, it is. Um, I And maybe it's because I know, um, you know people working on different space programs that think about cybersecurity. Um, but I got, what threats were you thinking of? Asteroids, <laughs> UFOs, okay. stuff like that. Um, I really thought you were going to say aliens. <laughs> well, I mean, UFOs, I, I get there. I'm, I'm not going full yeah. conspiracy just yet. But uh, let's <laughs> let's talk about that. Those, those companies that uh, uh, you deal with, uh, talk a little bit more about uh, what you see as far as their concerns when it comes to what they have to do in space. Yeah, so we've got a portfolio company that's putting um, small satellites up um, to, to basically create um, Wi-Fi networks um, in, in places where you can't get um, service. Okay. Um, and so, you know, they think about cybersecurity, they think about people hacking into it um, and using those satellites for other things. Um, you know, how quickly can you start controlling um, other satellites? And that's really dangerous, I guess, from a physical aspect of it, because you're talking about something that's literally, you know, just hanging out in Earth. God forbid there's some kind of cybersecurity flaw that actually brings that crashing down to the ground. You have a real problem there. And you could you could move them and and crash them onto the ground, too, if you're targeting something. You know, it just there's a lot of of concerns about what could happen um, with the satellites and then also what they could be um, monitoring as well. and, and, you know, and used to be spying on someone. So it sounds like the space ISAC was sorely needed. Glad we got this stood up. <laughs> I think so. So the group behind the infamous ICS tailored malware known as Trisis has been active. FireEye said Wednesday that is responding to another intrusion at a critical infrastructure facility carried out by the hacking group. That follows a seminal moment in ICS security when the group's malware disrupted a Saudi petrochemical plant in 2017. Fire researchers said, we believe there is a good chance the threat actor was or is present in other targeted networks. So Greg, what exactly makes this interesting? The people behind Trisis just really haven't gone away. Um, It's really interesting that they have stayed so active and have just really flummoxed researchers on this. Um, It it, it is, I would, you know, we've talked about this before, but I would really say that Trisis is probably the most dangerous piece of malware out there right now across the board. I mean, you're talking about something that hits uh, oil and gas plants and those oil and gas plants can blow up. So if this group is still extremely, extremely active, building on top of the platform that uh, they've launched their initial attacks on, that's a a really dangerous thing and really something that uh, both private companies and the federal governments um, should look out for. Wow. Hopefully um, somebody puts an end to it. So the Trisis news came from the Kaspersky Security Conference. Also at Kaspersky's conference this week, researchers at Alphabet's Chronicle announced that they have unearthed a new iteration of Flame, the famous nation-state spying kit that has targeted Iran. 
The components of Flame 2.0 appear to have been active between 2014 and 2016, showing how good source code dies hard and that tracking its evolution can be a very long game for researchers. Researchers have drawn links between Flame, another malware group dubbed Dooku, and Stuxnet, the famous computer worm that the U.S. and Israel reportedly developed and that destroyed centrifuges at an Iranian nuclear facility in 2009. Jen, just like Trisis, good malware seems to never disappear. Wait, so it appeared only between 2014 and 2016 and we're just now hearing about 2.0? Yeah, um, that's how advanced that this is, that something that has been active since 2016, you know, you needed years to break down what exactly it was and where it came from and what it was attached to and what it was capable of of doing. This 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 flame platform I would put up there with Trices, it's, it's really, really powerful because it gives attackers um, just an endless amount of ways to attack systems. Wow. Researchers have uncovered an APT that is used in an array of hacking tools and covert automatic updates as part of the campaign that looks like nothing any researchers have ever seen before. The Taj Mahal cybersecurity the Taj Mahal cyber espionage group uses software backdoors, audio recorders, keyloggers, screen and webcam grabbers, cryptography key stealers, and up to 80 malicious modules as part of the full-blown spying framework, according to researchers published Wednesday by Kaspersky. Taj Mahal relies on an entire new base of code that has no similarities to other known malware or APT techniques, helping its operators avoid detection between August 2013 and April 2018, researchers found. So that's interesting, Greg. Um, also, they kind of avoided a number and um, an animal for an APT group. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're getting places that are just named after uh, monuments now. But I will say that the monument, I don't believe has any sort of bearing on like from an attribution sense. Like, I don't think that this is tied to India at all. Okay. Um, so it, it's interesting. That- I mean, we didn't run out of numbers. Did no, we? Oh, no, 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 not yet. No, we'll, we'll be talking about uh, in 10 years, ABT, you know, 250, 251, stuff like that. That's, yeah. that's never going to go away. But um, <laughs> yeah, look, it, it's really, really interesting in that between this, the, Trisis stuff, the flame stuff. It was a really, really busy week at the Kaspersky conference for large scale uh, malware platforms and what they're really, really capable of. Like this isn't just some, you know, piece of spyware or it's not just some data exposure. Like this is some really, really dangerous stuff that has been unearthed this week. So good on researchers that they're they're keeping up with all of this stuff and and I would implore everybody to dive in deeper to the coverage on cyberscoop.com of some of the stuff just some really really fascinating research out there that is poured out of Singapore this week. I'll be sure to read it. So back in the US, hackers are trying to steal Americans tax information ahead of the April 15th deadline by sending emails that appear to be from trustworthy sources at Paychex, ADP and elsewhere according to IBM. Those messages are actually laced with TrickBot, a malicious software strain that typically infects victims through a malicious Microsoft Excel attachment. TrickBot steals valuable data, including banking credentials, allowing thieves to wire themselves money from the victims without immediate detection. It's delivered in the form of spam emails from paychecks and ADP, exploiting users' familiarity with those financial companies at the height of tax season. 
The emails tracked in early March landed in inboxes between 11.45 a.m. and 3.45 p.m., which are, of course, U.S. working hours. So, uh, Jen, uh, did you get your taxes done? Is this something that you have to worry about? I did get my taxes done. So, wait, did users actually open an attachment or just open the email and get this? So, I'm guessing that they opened the attachment, um, and the attachment was a Microsoft Excel attachment, and then TrickBot uh, did its thing. And hey, we see this every year. I mean, CyberScoop's been around since uh, October 2016, and we've seen scams like this pop up every tax season. It's just too easy to take advantage of. Um, it's too easy. Never open attachments you're not expecting. Right. But I, I will say it, it's you know, it's just another layer of deception. If it's just some random email, obviously you're going to take care of you. You're going to let your email providers spam filters and warnings take care of that stuff. But if, you know, you have an attacker that knows how to copy the style from a paychecks and ADP email, which is not very yeah. hard to do. Um, I mean, you're, yeah. you're going to be fooled. I would be surprised if I could pick this out. Um, if we sent that email, it, it, it's really, really easy. I, I can't stress enough how easy it is to fake the stylistics of these emails. Um, so I'm not surprised that these scams keep popping up. I mean, that said, I, I highly doubt you're going to open up an Excel sheet, although we both have jobs um, in that we end up opening attachments from strangers um, on a regular basis. At least I do um, just because of, of what I do, right? People send me pitch decks and executive summaries and financials and stuff all the time. Um, people I don't know, and it's my job to look at them um, to decide whether or not I want to consider them for investment. So I op- open way too many attachments than I should. Um, but I don't think I would open an Excel sheet from um, from my paycheck provider. Right, yeah. Like you're not at a spot in your job where you need to be getting Excel spreadsheets from paychecks or ADP overall. So that should be a red flag if you're getting those type of emails. But I would imagine that the, oh, I guess if you're the, the person at, in your office that does payroll, I guess you might open up right. that Excel and, sheet. And that's what I'm guessing – that these attackers yeah. are going for. Like you and I would never see anything like this. An HR person, accounts receivable, accounts payable, somebody that has the keys to the bank accounts is probably getting these emails. So that's where things well, I get interesting. let you know if our payroll person opened up this email from ADP because <laughs> I could see that happening. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, just goes to show really, really be careful with the emails that you get, especially around tax season. So if you're a Verizon Fios customer, time to patch your router. Research published Tuesday by Tenable found multiple vulnerabilities in widely used Verizon Fios routers that, if exploited, could give an attacker full control of a residential wireless network. It's the latest cautionary tale in how the hyperconnectivity of a smart home can be abused by hackers. So, Greg, I heard you had a Verizon router. Yeah, um, I'm going to be spending my weekend, uh, at least part of it, trying to figure out if there's anything that I need to do with this because um, I don't want anybody sitting on my wireless network at home, um, even though it would probably be uh, 95% of that traffic is me streaming cartoons for my kids. Um, at the same time, I, you know, I would prefer if nobody is watching in on that stuff. And now are you a connected home? Do you have like Nest video camera, security cameras and 
thermostats and all that kind of thing in your no, home? No, uh, specifically for the reason of not just the cybersecurity worries of it, just from a uh, just having a, a control standpoint. Like I've heard too many stories of Nest thermostats, you know, being bricked because a software update couldn't go through or something wrong with the internet. Like I don't want to be able to have, I don't want to sacrifice control to my house's heating because the internet has gone out or the power has gone out. Or well, I guess if the power goes out, it doesn't matter overall. But if the internet- yeah. I mean, I've had, I mean, I've had um, the Nest thermostat since like the day it um, came out. Actually, I'm on my second one. Um, I think I bought the first generation and then I might, I don't know, I might have replaced it with a third or fourth generation depending on what's out there right now. Um, but yeah, I, um, I mean, I've walked into, uh, I walked into our cybersecurity accelerator and I've got, um, uh, Nest cameras and, um, I'm talking to someone and I look over to the front of the room and, you know, on the big screen on the stage there, um, you can see a live feed of my dog, um, <laughs> because somebody, um, you know, I, I walked in there and, you know, I spend some time there. So obviously I'm, I'm on their Wi-Fi. Um, someone else was on that Wi-Fi and just hacked right into my nest and brought it right up. So yeah, see, and and that's exactly the stuff that I don't want to happen. I mean, I would say the most. I I do have a couple uh, Echo Dots for uh, Alexa, um, but I also there's I, and this is something that doesn't get talked about a lot. I I use the mute button on them a lot. There's a button that just shuts the microphone off, and I I use that uh, a lot when I'm not planning on using Alexa at all. But outside of that, I'm, I'm really just not into the connected home thing because I've seen too many stories about how things have gone wrong. That being said, I still want the internet in my house. So I have to have a, a, a router. And this is yeah. just another story of how there needs to be a little bit more know-how in everybody's arsenal on how to fix this stuff when there are flaws. Like it just, it just happens. It's not that hard to fix. I'll probably have to just log on to the router's um, access code, um, which is on the back of the, the router anyway. So 20 minutes, it'll be updated, but I, I'm sure that I'm in the top 1% of people that are going to do that. So I actually think, um, Greg, that when you do it, I think you should put together step-by-step instructions um, and then get that out through all your social media channels and on cyberscoop.com because I just don't think um, that many people know how to do things like that. And I think that could be helpful, right? Like I would, I would send that immediately send that link to like my brother, for instance, who's who got has Verizon Fios, but would not be able to, to do that until I showed up at their house to do it for them. That is a good idea. And I think I might do that. So, Hey, great minds. Thank you very much for the idea. <laughs> So this week, when it comes to funding, uh, there were two big rounds this week, uh, really, really interesting. Um, Armis, the cloud-based security platform that guards against unmanaged IoT devices, announced a $65 million Series C round of funding. They've seen, according to them, a 700% growth in annual revenue this past year. 
uh, signing a bunch of multi-million dollar contracts with enterprises across the country, including more than 25% of the Fortune 100. Notable customers include Mondelez International, the big food conglomerate that makes like Oreos and Cadbury eggs, stuff like that, Uh, Oracle, Cisco Foods, Allergen, and Samsung Research. Also this week, uh, BitGlass, a cloud access security broker company, announced a $70 million round in Series D funding with Quadrio Capital, Future Fund, NEA, Norwest, and Singtel Innovate. Also um, contributing into that. Sorry, I'm being thrown off because Singtel actually has an eight in their name. Uh, Interesting. The company's cloud security solutions deliver zero-day, agentless data threat protection, and then also watch over any app, any device, anywhere. Um, so, Jen, what's interesting here between these two raises? Um, well, 700% growth is interesting. That's phenomenal, right? Um, you know, that said, right? Like, if, if they had a million bucks in revenue, it's now $7 million. That's not, you know, that's not incredibly impressive. Um but given that they raised $65 million, you know, that number probably has more zeros on that um, than a million bucks. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think it's just, you know, they're both cloud solutions. I feel like there's so many out there, such a crowded space. I mean, obviously these are, do- are doing better given that they're on Series C and Series D, but um I'm just not that interested in the space. Interesting, because I feel like you're right. I feel like, especially with BitGlass and the Casby side of things, it is so crowded. But then on the flip side, how many people that we talk to in both the public sector and the private sector talk about the their IT systems and how they're still not really cloud based? Like, there's just so much technology out there that needs to be modernized. And if it's going to be modernized, it needs to be secure. And hey, here are these companies that are ready to secure it for you. So it's interesting, you know, I, I do believe that it is a crowded market. But then again, I see all of this legacy IT out there. And I think, uh, okay, I, I guess, I guess there's still market to gobble up. I mean, there is. And I think, um, I still think that the money in this industry is somebody standing up and saying, here's exactly how you implement this for your company. And here's the solutions you use. Um, Cause I just think people don't know, um, what to do right. and how to secure things the right way. There's, there's so much noise in the market um, and you just don't know which one actually right. works. So, and it, you know, it gets to just the greater pain points of this entire industry. Um, not everybody knows what they're doing. Not everybody knows how to implement this stuff. They can't find the right people to implement this stuff because there aren't enough people in the workforce, which is why, Efforts like what we were talking about earlier with Microsoft and MasterCard and Workday and the federal government are so important. Like, we don't need these people necessarily to come in and be like elite level hackers and are going to be threat hunting dynamos and that are going to protect all of these threats. How about they just come in and, you know, get a little bit of training and then go out into the workforce and they can decide whether or not cloud is right for some smaller medium-based bank or law firm or something like that. So, yeah, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, you bring up a really good point that I think speaks to the pain points of this entire industry. So now to our interview with Eric Heitzman, but first, 
If you have been to one of our events, you know we're not your typical cybersecurity conference. So we're taking our show on the road again this year. From September 16th to 20th, we will be hosting New York Cyber Week in New York City. The week, as always, is about big ideas, big talks, and doing something impactful for the greater good of technology. Register now to join 60-plus community events around the Big Apple. And for more information on what we have planned, check out nycyberweek.com. Okay, joining us now is Eric Heitzman, Director of Business Development for Security Compass. Eric, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Eric, talk to me a little bit about what Security Compass actually does. Well, we're basically helping organizations build software more securely. And for us, that means a couple different things. We provide consulting services, like just pen testing and code review and red teaming and stuff like that. Um, we also provide training, teaching developers to write secure code, both instructor-led and e-learning. And then we have a, a software product that I presume we'll talk about later, but basically it helps you build security and privacy into your application portfolio with some automation. What are the biggest challenges that you're finding as you're consulting with these companies? Well, so there's a lot of changes in the world of software right now. Um, the way software is being developed is going through a lot of different transformations, right? So 10 years ago, there was structured development called Waterfall, where maybe even more than 10 years ago, where you know the teams would define requirements, create a design, implement it, test it, and release a version of it, and then repeat that cycle um, in a pretty long process, uh-huh. six months to a year, you know, you'd go from Windows 3 to Windows 95, you know, it would be like on a, a long cadence. And then, you know, of course, Agile methodology is fairly similar, but very compressed timelines, right? So you develop kind of a minimum viable product, make incremental changes, uh-huh. you know, week after week after week, constantly consulting with your stakeholders and making iterative improvements. And then more recently, organizations have uh, begun adopting a new methodology called DevSecOps, which is even faster, right? And focuses on, you know, automation everywhere, especially in the build and release pipelines. So for security teams, this introduces a ton of challenges, right? Like one challenge that has always been the case is that security people are outnumbered by developers. Always. 10 to one, if not 100 to one or more, depending on the organization. So if you're building software that releases once a year, you have time to talk about the design and do a threat model and talk about the architecture and then look at the code and maybe do a pen test. But if you're talking about software that releases once every two weeks, uh, the security person could still participate in those conversations, but only if there's one security person per development team, which is often not the case. And then if you're talking about DevSecOps, you have teams that are releasing code, you know, every time the developer presses save and they're code editor like a couple times a day and there's just no way that any manual process that was invented in the past will survive to the modern era right so all of the old processes are falling apart so there's a lot of challenges yeah it's interesting to hear you say that devsecops is moving at basically warp speed because i was under the impression that the sec was the security part of everything and we know that security tends to slow stuff down when you're constantly shipping out applications so if there's a security component to it how does that help everything move faster 
So security absolutely has a reputation of being the bad guy and, you know, the team that says no and slows everything down. And that's because of those older models where, you know, you would gate everything. You know, you mm -hmm. can't move to the next phase until we do a code review. You can't move to the next phase until we do a pen test. Um, and, you know, and then they would find things, often at the 11th hour, and, you know, that would create additional work and it would delay launches. And so they kind of developed a bad rap. So in, uh, in the DevSecOps world, the security team is basically charged with the very difficult job of causing the software to be secure without slowing it down at any point. So all the methodologies that used to exist, they may still exist in a slightly different form or maybe an out-of-band process, but there is a bunch of new techniques that have been brought to bear um, that can operate in a, in a world that, that operates at this breakneck speed, right? So for example, um, there are activities that occur at the very early start, part of the SDL, and there are activities that occur later in the SDL, right? So um, at the end of the SDL is where most of the focus in DevSecOps conversations is about, right? The idea of everything from once the developer checks in code then we're going to scan it really fast, we're going to scan it all the time, right? And then before it goes into the build, we're going to look at the components that it uses and make sure that the jar files and DLLs and libraries are somehow safe. And then it's going to compile and then maybe we'll, you know, check it and protect it in, in real time in operations with some sort of fancy modern WAF, right? That web app firewall. So there's a lot of focus in this area, I'd say, maybe 90 plus percent of the vendors that do software security are focused on that kind of tail end of DevSecOps. But there's other important parts of DevSecOps that happen much earlier that get, um, that get a lot less press, right? So these are things like developer training, which is super important, but not particularly sexy to talk about. It's not a new topic. Um, also, <laughs> many organizations have kind of badly ham-fisted their training programs in the past, and so they're often not very popular. Um, and, then, um, and then one of the things that we're working with is this idea of like very lightweight, you know, self-service um, threat modeling-like activities that help developers identify what are the security risks that this feature that I'm implementing are likely to face, what are the countermeasures that are appropriate for that feature, um, and then you know, communicating that in into the development work stream in a format that they can use. So how does that work? They submit the code into it, or um, it runs, and you've got some software overlaying it to identify problems, or? So in the particular case of our SD Elements application, mm -hmm. we basically have a giant knowledge base of security and privacy and regulatory um, requirements, right, in a, in a big database that's, that's so large that it's indigestible, right? So a user would come to the application, and when I say a user, this is going to be a self-service application for application teams, right? So an app owner or an app architect will come in and say, all right, we're going to take our existing app, like, and we're going to model it really quickly by answering a questionnaire, right? What language is it implemented? Is it a web app or a, you know, a mobile app or a client-server app? Does it use a REST API? Does it use SAML for authentication? You know, what kind of sensitive data does it handle? You know, does it have PII about European citizens? Does it have children under the age of 13? And by answering this little questionnaire, it takes, you know, a few minutes. Like, 
a few minutes the first time you do it and even less on, on subsequent releases, we'll be able to basically reach into that big knowledge base and identify the uh, security countermeasures and the sort of privacy mechanisms that are necessary for that application to you know be legit. And then we could just show them to the developer, but that wouldn't be very DevSecOps friendly. So what we'd actually do is we share it into um, application lifecycle management tools, ALM tools. So that would be Jira, uh, you know, Microsoft Visual Studio Team Services, which has since recently been renamed, uh, Rational CLM and version one, and these okay. kinds of like developer orchestration tools. Yeah. And then we do also connect with the actual code analyzers later, right? So the extent to which an organization has dynamic analysis or static analysis, um, we can uh, validate using those tools that each one of those controls was implemented properly. And then you sort of have a portfolio view of all your applications and all their controls and which ones have been implemented, which ones have been tested. So. It's kind of a strange beast, right? You can see how it doesn't really fit neatly into any category. It's right. not just knowledge management. It's not really fair to call it threat modeling. Um, it's sort of like a GRC solution, but it sort of does a little bit more than that. So yeah, it's kind of a strange beast. So talking about the training aspect a little bit, I would love to get your opinion on what needs to be done more to enhance the way secure coding practices are done. because. I know a lot of developers like to rely on, like it's an open secret that a lot of development is, okay, I have a problem, I wanna go fix a problem, I'm gonna go Google the problem, I'm gonna hope that Stack Overflow has an answer for me and then I'm going to hopefully get my answer and carry on in my development life cycle. And I've always thought about like the possibility of, are we sure that what we're getting from a Google search or from a Stack Overflow answer is helping secure my application? It, like, obviously it might get it to work, but are we sure that that code is going to be safe as we deploy the application? Is that something that you worry about or is that something that you're trying to change with training a new workforce on how to operate in a DevSecOps mindset? Yeah, that, that is a tough one. And I don't want to cast too much shade on um, Stack Overflow specifically because there, there are a lot of good resources out there. Oh, absolutely. But, um, but yeah, this idea of, of knowledge management in an enterprise, right? Um, what is the right way to do things? What is the right way to do things here at this company, right? Given you know, our policies and the, the technical frameworks that we've implemented here. Um, so, you know, we tackle this in a number of different ways, right? That, that knowledge base that I alluded to is customizable. So organizations definitely spend time, you know, tailoring it to their specific needs, writing about, you know, the frameworks that they have and how they want, um, you know, their developers to implement those frameworks. Um, from a computer-based training perspective, that's, that's an interesting one. So. I don't, I don't know how many uh, computer science students you know or computer scientists or programmers you know, but I feel like when I went through computer science, um, I graduated with almost no security training, right, with a college degree, right? And I think a lot of people finish university with minimal formal training in computer science. And whether they got any on the job or not is kind of a, a fluke of, you know, what team they were at at what time and... Uh, you know, whether that organization invested in training. So what we do is a mix of things, right? We do the, the normal kind of 
annual curriculum based like oh let me sit down for an hour and study java security let me sit down for an hour and study rest api security we have those classes we have a big catalog of that stuff um and that's part of a strategy but it's not a complete strategy because it doesn't solve the just in time need that stack overflow is solving right. in the example that you're raising right now so imagine i'm a developer and i'm trying to do something very specific like my my json object isn't parsing and it's throwing some bizarre error and i'm just you know googling it so um, one of the things that, that we do to address that is we've taken um, those monolithic kind of hour-long, 90-minute-long training classes and divided them up into these three-minute micro-modules, and we use SD elements to jam those into JIRA, right? So if you have a user story in JIRA that says, okay, you know, implement single sign-on, right? The customer can customize SD elements knowledge base. So it says something like, um, you know, here at, you know, Big Bank XYZ, we use this solution for single sign-on. Here's how you do it. Here's how we want you to do it. And we have all these like training videos that, you know, can get attached to that ticket and say, okay, well, here's, here's why single sign-on is different from form-based authentication or, or whatever. I feel like I'm talking a lot about like our stuff specifically as opposed to just problems in the industry. But I think generally speaking, uh, you can kind of abstract this away and talk about um, what is the right way to enable a person. I think it's, it has to be a, a multi-part strategy where you, you teach them soup to nuts, uh, a topic completely, like get their focused attention and teach it to them. But then also you have to reinforce that on a just-in-time basis. You have to deliver it to the right person at the right time, in the right tool where they can take advantage of it. Because if it hits the wrong person, or too early, or too late, or somewhere where they're not expecting it, it's just this side useless, right? It's a terrible fit. So I think that's probably my strategy for developer enablement. So more broadly, you've been part of the industry for some time. What advice do you give others that are entertaining the cybersecurity field or considering a startup of their own? As a as an entrepreneur or as a uh, practitioner? Either or. Um, well, I mean, it's a good field to be in. There's obviously a lot of job security. Um, I think, let me answer that question from a perspective of somebody who's interested in the field of software security specifically, sure. not just cyber security. Sure. Um, so in the field of software security, I think it's really important to know how to code. Like, if you don't know how to code, then you're always going to be dependent on other people who do know how to code to actually get anything done. Um, and you're in this new world where the security organization and the development organization are working, like, hand-in-hand, hand, like, often, like, a blended team, your credibility is going to be so much greater with the engineers if you actually speak their language and can make a suggestion or provide a fix in code, right? And not just say, oh, well, the OAuth top 10 has this article that, you know, is uh, spewing generalized advice, you know? So I think uh, knowing how to code is like a, is a, a tactical piece of career advice for somebody who's considering software security. Uh, as far as how to get into the field, I mean, that's as easy as falling out of bed. I mean, there, <laughs> the, the, you know, there's negative unemployment in this space. I mean, the field is desperate for newcomers. So if you already know how to code, you should definitely consider a career in software security because it pays more and the job security is great and it's super exciting uh, and you'll, you know, a lot of good reasons. So, on to curiosity, we end every interview with a random question. So, 
Eric, would you rather be able to copy and paste in real life or undo in real life? Hmm. That is an interesting real question here. Um, I have no idea. Uh, I think I'd rather be able to undo, I suppose. I think that's a slam dunk. I would rather undo over copy and paste every time. Wouldn't you want an, an edit button for real life? So actually, I'm going to undo that answer, and I'm going to go with copy and paste. <laughs> oh, you just figured out how to undo it in real life. So there you go. You just you just definitely figured it out. Awesome. Yep. Eric, really appreciate you hopping aboard you. with us, and hopefully we'll talk to you in the future. All right. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Okay, that is it for this week. Thanks again to Eric, and we will see you again soon. As always, stay curious.